Hey everyone, I'm Dan Bressler, a partner in Suter & Kissel's investment management practice. Uh, our IM practice, which is one of the largest in the industry, works with investment managers across all strategies and all sizes. You know, last year in 2022, we worked in more than 55 new closed-end fund launches, more than 40 open-end fund launches, and we've been recognized by PEI, Chambers, Hedgeweek, Legal 500, and others in a representation of private fund managers. I want to thank you for joining us on this episode of our fundraising focus. Uh, in this series, we have a conversation with different individuals and firms that are allocating capital to private fund managers or involved, involved in the capital raising process or have experience managing a private fund advisory business and have raised capital for their fund products. Uh, before we get into the good stuff, uh, it's important to note that the discussions on this podcast are for informational purposes only. They are not intended and should not be considered to be legal advice. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this discussion. The opinions expressed by the individuals on this podcast, including guests, are opinions of those individuals only, do not reflect the opinions of Sewer and Kissel or the respective firms of those guests. Uh, any information in this episode should not be relied upon as a basis for an investment decision. Uh, so with that out of the way, I want to welcome Kelly Phelan, Managing Director at Asante Capital Group, as today's guest. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, so uh, to kick it off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and about Asante? Absolutely. So I've been with Asante Capital Group for the past six years, but have been a placement agent now for a little over a decade, having previously worked at Envision. Uh, prior to placement, I worked in investment banking at Goldman Sachs in New York and in the fixed income currency and commodities group at CIBC in Toronto, where I'm originally from. Uh, in terms of Asante, we're a global placement agent with offices in London, Munich, Hong Kong, LA, and New York. We're focused on a wide variety of closed-ended funds, including buyouts and growth equity, venture capital, private credit, and real assets. In addition to primaries, we also have a growing secondaries practice focused on GP-led transactions and direct opportunities and independent sponsors as well. Uh, we work with a variety of fund sizes, but on average, most of the groups we represent range between 500 million to about 3 billion, with plenty of exceptions on either end of the spectrum. Um, some of our venture funds, for example, have been on the smaller end, and then we've worked with uh, a number of larger mandates in the large cap space as well. Um, one thing to flag in terms of our setup and uh, my role in, in terms of uh, Asante's structure, we run what we call a fused plus model, uh, whereby each client facing professional is involved in um, both GP advisory and distribution. So my role is a bit unique in that I spend a relatively balanced amount of my time between um, advising GPs on their fundraises uh, and those that I lead on the execution side, as well as distribution to LPs, mostly in the Northeastern US and Canada, as well as origination of new business for the firm. That's great. Thanks for that. I think, I think we have a lot of overlap in the types of clients that we work with. You know, I think our, our typical closed then find clients, you know, range from emerging managers. We have a robust emerging manager platform that, you know, will launch with, with a couple hundred million to, you know, well-established managers, uh, you know, and, and on successor funds that are in, in the multi-billion dollar range. Um, but, you know, I think they're all having a little bit of difficulty. We see a lot in the news about um, how slow fundraising is, how a lot of funds have closed below target. Um, can, do you have any comments on, on what you're seeing today? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's no surprise that the fundraising market is, has gotten tougher across the board and we're seeing funds take longer to get to target and ultimately hold their final closes. Um, you know, I'd say that's particularly difficult for emerging managers who don't have an existing LP base to rely on for re-ups, but it's fair to say that we're seeing funds of all sizes and, and experience levels with prolonged fundraises. Um, groups we know that will ultimately be successful, uh, but are, who are having to stay open a little bit longer to accommodate their LPs funding issues. Um, to that point, you know, with a slow M&A market over the last nine months, LPs are receiving less distributions back from their managers and therefore have less capital to deploy than they did 12, 24 months ago. All while there's actually more funds in market than usual, uh, as the funds aren't clearing the market as quickly as they previously were. So there's quite a backlog. Um, you know, one statistic I'll, I'll share is I recently heard there's nearly two and a half times as many funds in market today as, as there were this time last year. So um, it, it's certainly stacked up. Um, in terms of capital uh, being raised, the quantum of capital being raised, we are seeing some groups closing below target, but I think more interestingly, we're seeing that the managers that are coming back to market today are now starting to re reset their expectations for fund size growth, vintage over vintage. So, you know, certainly less managers are doubling their fund sizes than we saw in, you know, the run up of 2021 and 2022. And, you know, in fact, I heard a statistic last week that, you know, roughly three quarters of managers that are returning to market in the next year are planning to target either the same as their prior vintage or, you know, a modest uplift of perhaps 20% than their prior funds. So expectations for the upcoming vintages are definitely changing as well. Yeah, that's a, a very interesting stat. Um, I think it's, as you're pointing at emerging managers, I think it, it's it's particularly hard also given the other barriers to entry that they deal with outside of fundraising. I think it's, it's a tough market to get into. Just going to say, you know, I, I think despite the, the difficulties in, in getting your um, yourself off the ground as an emerging market, or pardon me, an emerging manager today, there are a lot of opportunities out there in terms of deployment of capital and arguably, they're more likely to be leaving less carry on the table from their, their predecessors, assuming that they're spin outs. Um, right. So it, it could be an interesting time to see new, uh, new managers coming to market as well. So certainly something for LPs to watch. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's great. I guess speaking of, of LPs, you know, are there certain strategies that you're seeing more interest in from LPs? Um, and we, we've been seeing a lot of private credit lately. Uh, but obviously there's other strategies as well. Absolutely. We're, we're also seeing more interest in credit broadly in everything from direct lending to distress for control type strategies. Um, although we haven't yet seen the allocations flow there quite as quickly. Uh, I'd say particularly at the pension level, these programs tend to take quite a while to shift their allocation balances. So while we're hearing that there's interest for that to take place, I think we're going to see the unlocking of that capital more into the fourth quarter and the first of next year. Um, you know, also mentioned that what it seems to be driving that interest is LPs seeking more downside protection in this you know, volatile market. Um, and that can be achieved in a number of ways, either through the securities that you're investing in, whether that be credit or some sort of credit-like security within a, a structured opportunity, or more so in value-oriented and turnaround strategies within buyouts as well. So we're seeing um, renewed interest with uh, value-oriented strategies too. In terms of industries, I'd say healthcare continues to be a top focus for LPs. Um, and we are seeing some growing interest within industrials as well today. 
tech has obviously had a, a bit of a tough go in the past year, especially since the fallout of SVB, but we're hearing continued interest in the space, um, just at more modest valuations than what we saw in the run-up following the COVID era. Um, I've also heard, you know, many LPs now view this more as an overlay to the broader economy. So there's a belief that you need to be long-term investors um, in, in tech, especially within B2B play, plays to win. And of course, there's many nuances within tech that LPs feel, you know, maybe more resilient despite the current environment, particularly with well-established EBITDA positive businesses versus some of the more growth and VC-like assets as well. And then lastly, I'd say, Energy transition is, has been in vogue for a while now and continues to pick up steam. Um, we're seeing lots of interest from LPs across a variety of asset classes that touch energy transition, um, everything from traditional infrastructure assets to more bio and growth equity opportunities, and then also some of the technology plays that are being sought by the VC players as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the energy sector to me is at least particularly interesting. I'm curious to see what happens with the election season and how that'll impact. Uh energy, because I think that'll, that'll have a big swing, even more so maybe than tech or, or healthcare, which which I probably, uh, I know you, you said you have a lot of interest in. But I guess a, a separate sector you mentioned before was secondaries. There are, are secondary practices certainly growing. Um, and what do you see as, as LP interests for secondaries? And, and I guess a, a follow-up to that already is what how has that changed over the past couple of years? So I think going back even further, as many as 10 years ago, GP-led secondaries were really seen as a sign of weakness, but today it's just another tool in their arsenal, really allowing them to provide liquidity to their LPs or the option of liquidity um, while maintaining ownership of their best assets. So it's something that can really be win-win for all involved when it's being utilized correctly. Um, and the market is certainly starting to appreciate that today. Um, we've seen record deployment of LPs in the secondary space since the start of the pandemic and as a result, most secondaries funds have gone back to market more quickly than had been expected, not dissimilar to what we saw in primaries going back sort of 18 to 24 months. Um, in addition to the quicker pacing, we also saw exponential growth vintage over vintage in terms of fund size. Um, that led to some slower fundraising and some groups coming in a little bit below target, but we're seeing that even out a little bit more um, in terms of secondary fundraising. Um, on the deployment side, uh, leading up to this year, we'd seen a lot of GP-led transactions, particularly continuation vehicles and uh, a growth of single asset vehicles in particular. With a lot of secondaries players fundraising in a less certain environment, um, there's a reluctance, especially with the bigger groups, to be as large on a ticket perspective. So we're seeing ticket sizes coming down and more club deals and broader syndication as a result, especially for the largest deals in the market that just require a lot more capital. Some groups have been deploying heavily in the GP-led space. We're also hearing are shifting back towards LP stakes. Uh, you know, I think the mentality is really that they've been able to secure some pretty significant discounts in LP books um, in Q1 uh, and Q4. You know, generally speaking on pricing, I think spreads are starting to tighten a little bit on the LP trades. And so there's a bit of a shift away from that trade back to GP-led transactions. And our team's expecting a heavy load of GP-led deals to really hit the market just after Labor Day of this year. The other element to mention is how many of these deals in the market are actually getting done today. Um, you know, we've been really pleased that, that ours have, have gotten done or are well positioned to do so fairly soon. But 
we're hearing that on a significant amount of the GP-led continuation vehicles coming to market that they're not closing or they're facing significant delays due to issues in book building, which is creating some noise in the market and, and some sort of strange deal dynamics as well. Um, but arguably some interesting opportunities too. As it relates to how that impacts the primary fund, bringing us back, um, we've recently closed two GP-led transactions while also raising their primary funds. It's something that needs to be very carefully managed with regards to timing and, and of course, very importantly, in terms of conflicts and time and resource management, but it can be done with nuance and, and uh, a thoughtful approach. So certainly an, an interesting time, both as it relates exclusively to secondaries and how that ties into primaries. You won me over with conflicts. I can I can talk about that all day, uh, being a lawyer, but I would I won't bore everyone with that. You know, so switching a little bit, where are you seeing uh, you know just generally pockets of capital now? Yeah, so certainly each LP is unique based on their own sources of capital and and their capital needs, but there are some generalities that I can can share of what we're seeing um, in terms of those where allocations are a bit tighter. I'd say U.S. pensions broadly seem to be facing more of a squeeze with regard to liquidity today. Um, and we've been hearing from quite a few that they're fully tapped out of allocations through the year. Um, as we understand it, I think broadly the LP community is gonna be taking the summer to, to take a, a deep breath and, and reset expectations um, for deployment, both into the fourth quarter of this year and, and resetting for 2024 plans. Um, endowments, foundations, and family offices, you know, generally tend to be more flexible and seem to have more capital to deploy today. Um, but certainly that's on a, a sort of a name by name basis. You know, I, I would say that that group um, where they've been more flexible in their capital, I think they're very much looking at today as a great time to access what arguably might be some of the best vintages of the decade, given valuation prices that we've seen. And having more nimble internal processes, they're, they're able to pivot a bit more as, as the market adjusts. Geographically, I'd say the liquidity pressure is definitely a global phenomenon, but for LPs with younger alternative programs, especially you know, capital in the Middle East and Asia, it seems that they're feeling less pressure than those that have been participants for decades as they're less reliant on distributions in order to fund future commitments. Um, and then I'd say Europe is somewhere in between as well. Um, you know, the established players are definitely facing the same portfolio pressures as their U.S. counterparts. But on the whole, there are more new participants in the uh, allocation community within Europe as there are versus the U.S. And so we do see some pockets of capital available today where the programs are still, you know, largely in scale up mode and, and still maturing. Yeah, that, that's great. Um... Picking on LPs, um, you know, certainly as a, as a law firm, we're really involved heavily in investor negotiations on behalf of our clients, you know, pri primarily GPs, but occasionally an LP too. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested to hear what terms you're finding LPs are seeking uh, when, when they're looking at, at new funds. Yeah, over, overall, we're definitely seeing a rebalance in the power dynamics of the GP versus LP interests. Um, certainly, the LPs have more leverage today to negotiate better terms for themselves, just given the difficult market and fundraising environment. Um, you know, one of those that we're seeing a resurgence in is in discounts on management fees, um, both for size of ticket um, to encourage an LP to commit more dollars. Um, and in an investor's ability to make a first close to encourage that LP to move more quickly. It's, uh, it's not the kind of incentive that will help an LP choose 
one fund versus another, but in a market where LPs are having to make really difficult calls on who to re-up with and how to prioritize their, their pipeline versus push someone out another quarter, it, it can often be a helpful carrot to corral a reasonably sized first close. Um, you know, also on the point of fees, well, it's not a legal term, we are seeing more GPs offering live co-investments as a way to incentivize their LPs. Um, you know, this can help a fundraising where LPs are keen to average down their fees, um, assuming that the, the co-invest being offered are, are fee-free for those who come into the fund. And it also helps them scale up on what they think are going to be winners um, in those funds. But it's also helpful for GPs who may be looking to continue doing sort of the same size deals that are very much in their strategy um, size-wise, but want to de-risk it a little bit by not putting too much capital into any one deal as, as their funds are still being raised. So being really thoughtful about concentration risk there. The second point lines up a lot with the advice. I'd say co-investments are probably one of the, the biggest asks. And, and in some cases, an easy give because like you said, it's not there's no there's no fees tied to it. Um, but you know, particularly when you're talking about the family office type investors or, or the you know, non-pensions who are able to make direct investments, they, they, they seem to really like the co-investment opportunities. Yeah. Dan, out of curiosity, are you seeing many LPs ask for co-investment rights in writing uh, as opposed to relying on handshake agreements? Uh, ask yes, get no. So, you know, I think it, 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 it doesn't hurt for them to ask and they often do, but, but I think they're not always successful in getting it in a written sideline. Well, Kelly, I want, I want to thank you for taking time to speak with us today. It was great to hear your insights. Uh, and thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Fundraising Focus. Okay. Thank you for having me.